Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. Eyewitness to the autopsy of President Kennedy, Francis O'Neill, and author George Michael Evica, here participate in a panel discussion about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. April 2nd, 1992, in Concord, New Hampshire. And because I'm currently taking evidence with Professor Saunders right now, uh, I decided to try to put together a panel discussion on the assassination uh, from a legal context. Um, With the help of Professor Saunders, I think we put together uh, quite a good panel, and we should have a lively discussion tonight, judging from uh, our our discussion uh, at dinner. Um, before introducing our panelists, I'd like to go over uh, the purpose of tonight's presentation. Uh, the presentation is not intended to be a free-for-all debate, uh, as some of the uh, recent television shows, uh, for example, the, uh, John McLaughlin, I think, the McLaughlin group, uh, had a, a uh, shouting match recently on the assassination. Um, we don't intend to have, have anything like that. We want this to be a thoughtful uh, discussion from a legal perspective. Uh, examining the issues in the evidence, how lawyers would look at the evidence, how juries would look at the evidence, how a judge would look at the evidence, um, and we hope it will be a lively discussion. On November 22, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated. Less than an hour later, a police officer in a residential section of Dallas was murdered. And two days later, the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, himself was murdered on national television. These events have been interpreted in many different ways over the last 28 years, and including two different ways by the federal government itself. In 1964, the Warren Commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald alone was responsible for the deaths of President Kennedy and Officer Sidney. In 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that President Kennedy was, quote, was, quote, probably killed as the result of a conspiracy, unquote, based on acoustical tests performed on an audio tape of the assassination, which was accidentally recorded by a Dallas police motorcycle officer who was riding uh, on his motorcycle at the scene of the assassination. The uh, tape indicated, according to the acoustical testing, a second gunman in the grass and all. Tonight, we'll look at the evidence, and tonight, you can be the jury. I'd like to introduce our panelists right now. I'll start from the left-hand side. Um, on the far left is Professor George Michael Ibuka of the University of Hartford. He's a professor of English, and he's the author of And We Are All Mortal, uh, which is a book on the assassination, and he's currently working on his second book entitled The Iron Sights. Uh, professor Ibuka teaches investigative reporting uh, and also hosts a weekly radio program at the university uh, devoted to assassination-related topics. Francis X. O'Neill. Uh, to my left, 
is a retired special agent with the FBI. Mr. O'Neill was present at the autopsy of John F. Kennedy and participated in the FBI's investigation of the assassination. Mr. O'Neill has a law degree from the University of Baltimore Law School. Um, he is, among his many uh, experiences, uh, include being a, the FBI liaison to the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Vice Presidents. Uh, he's also been an FBI liaison to foreign intelligence uh, agencies all around the world. Uh, on the far right, uh, we have Bill Cheslock, who is a history teacher and special needs teacher at Chatham High School. Mr. Chat uh, Mr. Cheslock teaches a course called the Kennedy Years, which is a course in critical thinking uh, using the assassination as a means of examining history. And to my immediate right is Professor Linda Saunders, uh, who teaches evidence and trial advocacy here at, at the Law Center. She's a member of the Board of Governors for the New Hampshire Trial Lawyers Association, and she's currently preparing a treatise on New Hampshire uh, evidence law. Uh, just to get things uh, underway, uh, it's been said that everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news of the assassination. Um, I'd like to start with Professor Ivica. Where were you when you heard the news? I was crossing the uh, Golden Gate Bridge from uh, um, New York County into San Francisco on my way to San Francisco State to teach my classes there. On one side of the bridge, I heard that awful sound, which I think NBC News it doesn't use it anymore, to indicate something awful has happened. I found uh, up by the middle of the bridge that the president and possibly others in the limousine had been hit by rifle fire in Dealey Plaza was able to tell the toll taker that, and when I arrived at the campus about 20 minutes later, the announcement had come that the president was dead. I was in a bureau car in Maryland. I was uh, en route to Glen Arden, Maryland, where the police headquarters were. I received information on my bureau radio from our office in Baltimore that the president had assassinated. I was a, uh, a freshman in college at Hofstra University in New York. Actually, we were sitting in uh, a psychology class when a student came running in and just uh, began to pound his uh, fist against the wall, uh, hysterical, saying that the president was shot. At that point, of course, uh, class was uh, canceled, and we uh, tried to find radios and TVs to uh, find out what actually was going on. I was a freshman in high school in algebra class, and I remember the sound coming over the loudspeaker and the announcement being made um, that something had happened to the president. We all went to the auditorium where the television was turned on, and I, and I guess my clearest memory of that was being in total shock and uh, feeling emotionally just numb. And that's the way the feeling was for at least another week. I myself was uh, two years old, and uh, <laughs> that's not the punchline. Uh, apparently, uh, I was taking a nap. Uh, mom was watching as the world turns. And Gary, you said your mom was very upset that as the world turns was interrupted. <laughs> Sorry, <Okay>. Mrs. Hamilton. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'd like to have Professor Ivica now uh, run through some slides he has and some commentary on evidence uh, that the Warren Commission gathered uh, in this case. 
we're going to be able to run the slides with, uh, with the lights on because I, I wanted to keep to a, a script that I did for this evening. Uh, you'll see many more slides than I will comment on because they're organized for another purpose. Here we want to get uh, at a, a neutral description of um, what happened and um, the disposition of certain kinds of evidence. Now, you all know what we're talking about. Dallas, November 22nd, 1963, 12.31 Central Standard Time, Dealey Plaza. Riding in the open presidential limousine on the way to the Dallas trademark, President John F. Kennedy, his wife, Governor John Connolly, and Mrs. Connolly were fired upon, and the president was struck by several rifle rounds. Governor Connolly was wounded seriously at the same time, and a bystander was struck in the cheek by a bullet fragment or a curbing chip from an apparent missed shot. Less than one half hour later, the president was declared legally dead at Parkland Memorial Hospital, where for a time, the Texas governor remained in critical condition, but eventually recovered. Here's Dealing Plaza, where the motorcade proceeded west, that's left across the street, on Main Street, for the so-called triple overpass, the railroad tracks that pass over Commerce Street, Main Street, and Elm Street. And the lead car turned hard right, onto Houston Street off Main, which meant a hard turn left onto Elm, the so-called hairpin turn. According to the first Secret Service reports radioed directly from the motorcade, this, this is from WFAA reports out of Dallas, there was a, quote, flurry of shots, unquote, a quote again, bursts of gunfire from an automatic weapon, unquote. Both Kennedy and Connolly were hit, and the motorcade sped off for Parkland Memorial Hospital. According to the Warren report, the Dallas police announced they have discovered a rifle in the Texas School Book Depository. Here, a picture of that rifle taken on November 22nd. A picture of what is later reported to be an Italian Manic Carcano 6.5 clip-fed single-shot bolt-action rifle. The officer carrying this weapon is Lieutenant Day of the Dallas Police. We have someone in the audience who's spoken directly to, to uh, Lieutenant Day in Dallas who is in the act of transporting this reportedly found rifle to the Dallas Police Laboratory. The initial Dallas Police announcement is that a 7.65 bold action rifle has been found, found and reported on by Sheriff's Office Detective Seymour Weitzman, uh, who is, by the way, an experienced law enforcement officer and rifle expert. Now, this is, by the way, the, the, the same rifle that's pictured throughout all the 26 volumes, throughout every photograph, I did, a, 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 because I could not get exact um, um, measurements, I did um, what in effect was a logical analysis of all the parts on every rifle photo and all 26 volumes. There is no second rifle uh, pictured in the 26 volumes of the Warren Report. This is apparently that, that, that same rifle. Yet the official uh, rifle reports continued to contradict each other over a period of several days. And the Warren Report did not clear up the confusion arguing that the rifle was without identifying marks in one section and reporting that it was clearly identified in another section. When uh, FBI rifle expert Robert Frazier testified before the Warren Commission, he eliminated one mystery. He identified the rifle he examined in Washington as a 7.35 millimeter uh, rifle rebarreled down to 6.5 millimeter. His testimony therefore supported Weitzman's earlier initial 7.65 identification. In other words, Weitzman was apparently off only 0.3 millimeters in the examination of the rifle that he reportedly found. 
but the conflict of the defecation markings was never resolved. This is the Texas Theater. The Dallas police say that a Manlicker Carcano can be traced to Lee Harvey Oswald, whom they arrest initially for allegedly killing police officer J.D. Tibb. Just below the marquee is, in fact, the arrest going on right now in that photograph of bringing out Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Oswald is arrested at this theater, and a usual number of law enforcement officers are on the scene. More than 20 Dallas, state, and federal officers participate in the arrest. This is a partially dismantled rifle, not totally dismantled, so to call it the dismantled rifle, as it does in the photograph, is, is a, uh, a mislabeling. But the, the totally dismantled rifle, on November 23rd, the Dallas police charged that this Manlicker Carcano was brought dismantled by Lee Harvey Oswald, now in their custody, into the depository in this bag, also allegedly traceable to Oswald. But neither the rifle nor the bag carry Oswald's prints when examined officially by the FBI. The Warren Report accepted the Dallas police statement that the Dallas lab found a print of Oswald's palm, which was not discovered by the FBI. The sniper's nest. Now you're going to see five photographs, all official photographs. The alleged sniper's nest is found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository building. The boxes go from window edge to window edge without a break. Each of the boxes weighs 50 pounds or more. None is out of place when allegedly found by law enforcement officers. Seven differing photos of the inner arrangement of boxes taken from November 22nd through November 24th are published in the Warren Commission's 26 volumes of evidence. All seven contradict each other. Neither the Dallas Police nor the Warren Report offered any explanation why these major differences in the so-called sniper's nest box arrangements should exist. This is the famous light photo. According to the Warren Commission, two photos are found of Oswald holding, according to law enforcement authorities, the rifle allegedly used in the JFK murder. You will notice I'm not speaking to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, nor to any of the researchers, nor to my, my own research, nor to my opinions. I'm trying to hold to what the Warren Commission did and what was reported in the Warren Report. Now these pictures, the two photos, especially this one, are widely uh, circulated and widely published after Oswald is killed by Jack Ruby. That's from, uh, directly from a print in the National Archives. This is an overview of the Dallas Plaza shooting picture. Here is an overview. The official FBI reports on the assassination conclude that there were three shots, three hits, seven non-fatal wounds inflicted on Kennedy and Connolly, and one fatal wound suffered by the president from one location with one person responsible. According to these official FBI reports, the first bullet hits Kennedy in the back, a non-penetrating, shallow wound. The second bullet hits Connolly, causing one, a penetrating thorax back through chest wound, two, a penetrating right wrist wound, and three, a left thigh wound. That's the original single bullet theory advanced by official FBI reports. A third bullet hits JFK in the head with, according to the official FBI reports, a bone fragment or possibly bullet fragment ripping through the front of the president's throat. The Warren Report rejects these official FBI findings. The curve. These are the last 3 eighteenths of the second of the president's life. These are stills from the Zapruder film. That's the hit at Z313. The curve. We'll get to the... I said we have these, I have these slides, and for other purposes I won't comment on them. 
occurred. The Warren Commission did not accept the official FBI reports of three shots, three hits, seven non-fatal wounds to two victims, and one fatal wound to one victim. Remember, the Commission had to explain an unaccounted for non-fatal wound suffered by James Tade, a bystander located too far away to be hit by a fragment from the three accepted shots. The Tade wounding was assumed to have been from a missed shot. Here, the chipped curbing, the result of an assumed missed shot that wounded Tate. If the FBI analysis of three shots and three hits from one location was correct, then this admitted missed shot was a fourth shot. The timing analysis of the Zapruder film, combined with the tested capability of the assumed, alleged, reported uh, assassination rifle, the Manly Carcano, did not support a fourth shot. The FBI lab analysis of this extracted curve, June and July 1964, found, quote, lead with a trace of antimony, unquote, the result of either a fragment of the lead core of a copper alloy jacketed round or the fragment of a lead round without copper alloy jacketing. The recreation and its trajectory. The Warren Commission ran Dealey Plaza tests of the shooting. Could the bullet that allegedly caused all of Connolly's wounds also be responsible for all of Kennedy's non-fatal wounds? These analyses suggested problems with both trajectories and with a projected JFK exit wound too low to match his throat wound. According to the Parkland Memorial doctors, the president had been wounded in the front of the throat. That is, every doctor and every nurse who observed the president's front neck wound described it as a small, round knee hole of entry. The wound that, uh, observed at Bethesda was a three-and-a-half-inch apparent excision. Our inspector for the Warren Commission therefore argued, on the basis of the Bethesda material, that the president was shot in the back of the neck, the bullet exiting his throat, passing through Governor Connolly's back and chest, through Connolly's right wrist, entering his left thigh, and falling out at Parkland Memorial Hospital. The official FBI autopsy report, however, cited an autopsy doctor's conclusion that the JFK uh, um, back wound was, in fact, shallow and non-penetrating. The autopsy sheet. The official autopsy sheet placed JFK's back wound where the Naval Death Certificate had placed it at JFK's third thoracic vertebra. The Naval Death Certificate also placed JFK's throat wound at his second tracheal ring, just below the Adam's apple. Third thoracic vertebra is number two on that, on that drawing. The second tracheal ring is at number three. The argument of the Warren Commission was that there was a back wound at number one, which is, of course, untrue. The FBI reports, therefore, the Bethesda autopsy report and the Warren report contradict each other. Uh, we're going to go to CE 399 and the, and the test rounds. There it is. <coughs> the middle round in this photo is CE 399, the so-called stretcher bullet, the so-called magic bullet. According to the Warren report, this round left lead particles in both JFK and Connolly, and yet according to FBI expert Robert Frazier, it lost no weight except when he shaved it for scientific analysis, the nick at the top of the bullet. The round had, according to his testimony, quote, no fine striations on its lens and grooves, unquote, nor, according to FBI agent, 
Did its surface show any blood, bone, tissue, or fiber? Now the ballistic slides here, um, this is the uh, so-called base uh, uh, fragment, and this is the so-called nose fragment. Uh, I'll speak to these in more detail when I have a chance to talk outside of the War Commission context. This is also known as uh, Q3, and this is also known as Q2, that is Q for in question, FBI notation, K for known. One ballistics expert, FBI ballistics expert, and an Indiana ballistics expert both argued before the Warren Commission that CE-399 and these two fragments found in the limousine indeed ballistically matched the Carpano reportedly found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. These are slides of, uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald. The Warren Commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald, a former Marine, who reportedly defected to the Soviet Union and then returned to support the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was the lone assassin of the President. The Warren Commission did not establish a motive, but did suggest several possibilities. Jack Ruby. The Commission also concluded that Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, had what the Dallas police and the Warren Commission <coughs> called minor ties to organized crime, U.S. intelligence, corrupt labor, and urban police departments, including the Chicago and Dallas police. Um, <clears throat> Mr. O'Neill might recognize those sort of official FBI documents informing us that Jack Ruby was an informant for the FBI in 1959. Where? Where? Dallas. Medvedev. There's at least one FBI guy. <laughs> Portrait of JFK, the Dallas police, the FBI, and the Warren Commission reported no evidence of a conspiracy to kill either JFK or Lee Harvey Oswald. Thank you. Uh, Bill, you want to do your okay. Thank uh, Professor Saunders and Gary Hamilton for inviting uh, me tonight. 29 years ago, President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. We're here tonight still looking for answers to many questions. One week after the assassination, President Johnson formed the Warren Commission charged with finding the truth and reporting to the American people. The Warren Commission stated to the American people that no stone would be left unturned. Evidently, that hadn't happened. A recent CNN poll states that between 85 and 89 percent of the American people do not believe the findings of the Warren Commission. If we go back to the early days when the Warren Commission first started its investigation, to look at the evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald, one would think it would be an open and closed case, as the Dallas police stated uh, hours after Oswald was arrested. Listen to the evidence here against this man. The rifle that was found was found to be his uh, was purchased 
through a mail order house in Chicago, and the papers traced right back to his post office box in Dallas. The three shells which were found in the sniper's lair matched the Carcano rifle. The uh, bullet found at Parkland Hospital was fired from the Monica Carcano. Fragments from John Kennedy's wounds in his head, Connolly's wrist, and a limousine all seem to spectrographically match. A palm print was found on the rifle. The media uh, was told that a paraffin test was given to Oswald to see if uh, he fired a rifle that day, and the uh, uh, Dallas police stated to the media that the test did show that Oswald fired a rifle as powder burns were found on his cheek near where he shot the rifle. They had an eyewitness to the assassination. A man standing 120 feet across the street looked up and saw Lee Harvey Oswald fire shots from the sixth floor of the Book Depository building. His name was Howard Brennan. Fibers from Oswald's shirt matched fibers taken off the butt of the rifle. The paper bag that Professor Evica had mentioned uh, was found and supposedly was brought in with the rifle underneath it that morning. The backyard photographs would show Oswald with the rifle and the pistol used to kill Officer Tippett uh, matched back to the camera that was allegedly owned by Oswald. Oswald, according to the CIA, was photographed and taped in Mexico visiting the Cuban Embassy in order to prompt his escape from the United States after he assassinated the President. There are photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald coming out of the Cuban Embassy. There are audio tapes of Lee Harvey Oswald talking to the Russian Embassy. Finally, in a lineup, four, there were four different lineups, three on Friday, one on Saturday. Many witnesses uh, testified that Lee Oswald was indeed the man who killed Officer Tippett. And if you listen to David Bielan, one of the uh, uh, Warren Commission attorneys, Lee Harvey Oswald killed the President of the United States because he killed Lee Harvey, uh, because he killed uh, Officer Tippett. I'd like to take a look at some slides. And I want to go over the initial evidence that came out of Parkland Hospital and the initial evidence that came from eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza. We must remember now, watching this evidence, watching this testimony, watching the various slides, that the Warren Commission came to the conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. All shots were fired from behind the presidential limousine from the sixth floor of the Book Depository building. This is Malcolm Kildoff. Malcolm Kildoff was the acting press secretary that day because Pierre Salinger was in an airplane uh, halfway across the Pacific Ocean with the rest of his cabinet. Malcolm Kildoff just came out of a meeting with the doctors who tried to save the president's life. 
he was asked, where was the president hit? Where did the bullet hit him? And uh, Mr. Kildall pointed to his right temple and said it's a matter of a bullet in the brain. These two doctors, Dr. Clark, <clears throat> on the left is the doctor who pronounced uh, the president dead. Uh, both doctors testified that President Kennedy's throat wound was one of entry, and five other doctors corroborated that that day. Okay. Let's go back to Dealey Plaza. In Dealey Plaza, there were many witnesses who saw the president come through Dealey Plaza and the subsequent attack on the limousine. The limousine came down Main Street, made a right on Houston, made a very sharp hairpin left-hand turn onto Elm and continued down where it was supposed to go under the railroad trestle, onto the Stemmons Freeway and out to the trademark where President Kennedy was going to uh, give a luncheon speech. Originally, the motorcade was supposed to come straight down Main Street and onto the Stemmons Freeway. A couple of days before the assassination, this route was changed to come into Dealey Plaza and come down Elm instead. Here is your book depository building where the shots allegedly came from, from behind. Here is the infamous grassy knoll area with the picket fence and the railroad yards in the back. This is a slide taken, many say, at the point of the first shot that hit the president. We're on Elm Street. Here you see the president sitting in the limousine. Here's the backup car with the Secret Service men. Up on the uh, cement wall, you see two figures. This is Abraham Zapruder and his secretary who is steadying him, standing behind him. In the Zapruder film, uh, the, the motorcade goes behind the fence. You cannot see what is happening because this uh, little uh, sign is in the way. Mr. Zapruder is blocked from the limousine. However, uh, this this uh, slide taken up from the other side of Elm Street shows clearly uh, what is going on here. There were many witnesses uh, in Dealey Plaza along Elm Street who gave testimony to Dallas police and FBI. Mr. and Mrs. Newman were two uh, witnesses with their children uh, standing along Elm Street in this area. Okay. Here's Mr. and Mrs. Newman right here. Uh, both testified that they thought shots came from behind them, from the grassy knoll area. In fact, they thought their children were in danger. They thought they were in the flight of the, of the attack, and they both fell with their children and turned around to look back to see what was happening. Okay. This is moments after the shots were fired. As you can see, many people are heading towards the grassy knoll area, picket fence area, to see just what happened back there. Okay. This is a top of the grassy knoll near the picket fence where the uh, triple underpass begins. Here you see numerous people looking in back of the railroad yard to see what happened. 
here you see a Dallas police officer who jumped off his motorcycle and uh, ran to the top to see what was happening back there. This is the triple underpass. Uh, this is not on the day of the assassination, of course. I took this uh, last November when I was in Dallas. However, many witnesses were standing on top of the railroad overpass watching the president's car as it would come under. One such uh, witness was Sam Holland. Sam Holland was a railroad worker. I uh, wanted to see the president's car come underneath. Sam Holland testified that as soon as shots were fired, he thought one came from in the back towards the book depository building, and then he testified others came from the picket fence grassy knoll area. He testified that he saw smoke uh, coming from underneath the trees. He immediately, with uh, other railroad workers, ran around uh, to the back of the picket fence to the parking lot area to see what was going on back there. Okay. This is a railroad tower that is situated in back of the grassy knoll and back of the picket fence. A witness by the name of Lee Bowers was standing uh, in the tower. He was a tower man for the railroad company. His job was to direct uh, freight cars in and out of the railroad yard. Lee Bowers testified as to what he saw as he was looking towards the picket fence moments before the assassination. Go ahead. Looking from Mr. Bowers' tower, what he could see back here was the rear of the picket fence. If you look over the picket fence, you look onto Elm Street where the president's car was coming by. Mr. Bowers said he noticed two men were standing looking over the fence moments before the assassination. He said at the time of the assassination when shots were fired, something brought his attention to that same area. He couldn't tell if it was a flash of light or a flash of smoke or some sort of commotion, but something in here was irregular and it brought his attention to the picket fence. He couldn't say that they were definitely shots fired, but he did say something happened back there. He didn't know if it was a flash of light, a flash of smoke, whatever it was, drew his attention to the picket fence. In all that day, the Dallas Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Secret Service interviewed numerous eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza, 83 to be exact, official eyewitness accounts that day. 32 said shots came from behind the presidential limousine towards the Texas School Book Depository Building, Dallas Tex Building, County Records Building. 51 eyewitnesses thought shots came from the picket fence grassy knoll area. Included in this 51 are two Secret Service agents and numerous Dallas police officers. Does this suggest shots from behind only? Well, they're eyewitnesses. And sometimes eyewitnesses are not the most perfect uh, evidence to look at. But the majority of witnesses who were questioned that day thought shots came from the picket fence grassy knoll area. I think these eyewitness accounts corroborate 
what the Dallas doctors found when they were trying to save the president's life. Seven doctors testified that the throat wound was one of entry. This coupled with what the eyewitnesses saw behind the picket fence, grassy knoll area, certainly links up better than just shots fired from behind. Thank you. All I can say to you is what I observed and what I know and what evidence, credible evidence, shows. Not conjecture, not theory, but facts. Facts that can be admitted in a court of law. Facts that any reasonable jury would find one person, and one person only, responsible for the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But I'll get into that at a subsequent time. Uh, just some comments about the the uh, things which were discussed in the slideshow, which you saw, which I thought, by the way, was excellent, and many of which I had not seen before. I think both of you gentlemen have done an incredible job uh, in gathering uh, the material which you gave to these people today. Excellent. The rifle. <coughs> The rifle has been proven beyond all doubts to have been purchased by Bihabi Oswald, and it does have his fingerprints on it. Let me rephrase that. Not a fingerprint, palm print on it. Palm print taken off the underside by a Dallas police officer. It was not found by the FBI because there was no palm print there to be found. It had already been taken off. However, the material that the palm print was on, residue of that was found on the rifle in the back. And you have to believe that the palm print found on the rifle came from Lee Harvey Oswald and was taken off by the doctor. You might have a theory, you might have thoughts, it's not true, but prove to me and prove to a court of law that it's not true. Bullets from his rifle were matched. Let me rephrase that. Specks of bullets, fragments of bullets, which were taken out of the head in my presence and given to me, were of the same consistency as the bullets utilized in that particular rifle, which has been spoken about today. The Bureau, which has, to my way of thinking, one of the best laboratories in the world, and I think most of you people, you know, your families have contributed to that laboratory over the years, in monies, and in time, and in energy, and all police departments in this country utilize that particular laboratory. It's stated that that pristine bullet, which I agree with George Michael, did not go through Governor Connolly. That pristine bullet did come from the rifle of our good friend, Mr. Oswald. Eyewitnesses can see something totally different from other eyewitnesses. You go downtown here, into Concord, New Hampshire, and stands outside for five minutes and say, look, look out there, and keep looking. 
and in a matter of minutes, you'll have people surrounding you looking up. What did you see? I saw this. And they'll point, and they'll point. And before you know it, you'll have people saying so many different things, when in reality, nothing was seen at all. I'm not saying that that happened at the grassy knoll. But I do know that one person started to run up the grassy knoll, and many others did follow. If that one person happened to be a person in uniform, then many other would follow. Try it sometime and see what happens. That's true. Some people say a puff of smoke in the grassy knoll. Mm. November, broken water pipe underneath that steam pipe. That's why something might have been in there. Just thoughts, just conjecture. Mr. Lee Bowers was on a railroad tower, looked out, and he saw something. That after he after he had seen some people there originally, he looks out and something. I don't know what it is. Nor does anybody know what it is. I didn't hear that he saw the same two men there at that particular time. Witnesses on the overpass, Sam Holland, looks and sees something or a flash or what? Strike of a match, uh, what? From the uh, the grassy knoll. No evidence that could be admitted in a court of law. Best evidence is evidence which is taken not six weeks, not 13 years, not 27 years, not four days after an assassination or after a murder. I've investigated many murders in my time, many kidnappings. I was even involved, in a way, in the RFK assassination by evidence, from an evidentiary point of view. And I know that most of the time, best evidence is obtained immediately thereafter or within a reasonable time. Within six hours, six hours of the assassination of President Kennedy, I interviewed the two Secret Service agents who were in the car. Roy Kelman and Bill Greer. Both of these gentlemen had been under fire before. I have been shot at before. And believe me, if you are shot at, you know where that bullet is coming from. No doubts, you know. Both of these gentlemen, within six hours after the assassination, told me that the bullets came from above and behind. Both of them. No other person had interviewed them at that time. No chance to get stories together. No collusion. Oh, by the way, if you're shot at and it comes from the back, you know when you, that bullet goes by you, you are zing! It comes right by you. That happened to me. I knew where the bullet came from. They had been shot at. They knew where the three bullets came from. Mr. Kildorf said something about a bullet in the brain. Well, he was right. That really did knock off the back and right back side of the president's head. Whether he was pointing here, whether that picture got him as he was moving his finger back, I don't know. Photographs do many funny things. Movies do many funny things as time goes on. Credible evidence? Question mark. Dieter Plaza. Many people heard many different things that day. 
Many people were in many different places that day in Dealey Plaza. I've been there. These gentlemen here have been there. If you fire a shot, is it going to echo back? I don't know. Could be. Could be. If you have a backfire on a car, is it going to sound like a shot 26 to 27 years later? When you take it out of a, uh, a police vault, and what happened to it in the police vault, God knows. This is an open microphone hmm, that a police officer had and was recorded in the police headquarters and for some reason never came forward until the House Subcommittee on Assassinations discovered it, quotes, close quotes, in 1978 when I was interviewed, and I have my Oscar David here, which I'm sure going to be done with on the uh, uh, subcommittee. Uh, and the Warren Commission said that they believe it's possible, probable. Did they say, yes, there is a conspiracy? No, there was a conspiracy. No, Lee Harvey Oswald was not the only gentleman who had this instinct, or whatever you want to call it, to kill the president. He had the opportunity, he had the means, he was a paranoid, he had attempted suicide in the past, he had attempted murder in the past with the same rifle which killed the President of the United States. Lee Harvey Oswald did it. Believe me, and we can get into later on, and we'll tell you other things. These are just comments, by the way, just comments on what we've heard. Thank you. I had to get equal time. <laughs> uh, the first issue uh, we want to talk about uh, in some more detail uh, is the rifle itself. Um, as Professor Ibuka mentioned, uh, initially uh, five Dallas police officers identified it incorrectly as a 7.65 millimeter Mauser type rifle. Um, were there any markings on the gun, Professor Ibuka, that would indicate uh, what type of gun it was? The um, rifle in the possession of the FBI had sufficient markings to indicate its caliber, the place that it was made, etc. An extraordinary number of markings. There is that major contradiction in the report <coughs> in which um, one section of the report indicates that it had no identifying marks, and in another part of the report indicates it, in fact, did have uh, identifying marks. Let me comment, by the way, on the, the Mauser business. Uh, at no time until quite a bit later was the word German introduced in the, the discussion of the rifle. And in fact, the first time it was brought up in testimony before the Warren Report, it was Mark Lane who unfortunately called it uh, a German Mauser. Mauser relates to bolt action, and a number of rifles, rifles have the Mauser bolt action. The Mannlicher Carcano is a combination of three uh, rifles the Mannlicher rifle, the Carcano rifle, and a Mauser bolt action. You can find that on a German Mauser, and an Argentine Mauser, and on the Mannlicher Carcano. So Seymour uh, Weitzman was absolutely correct when he called it a Mauser bolt action. It's the type of bolt action. He was not identifying it as a, as a German rifle. He also, as I reported to you, uh, indicated it was a 7.65, it was a 7.35 rebarrel. Uh, I received uh, from um, um, 
I believe it was the Secret Service, um, <coughs> rep uh, rifle reports from the uh, Italian Secret Service. Uh, in my book, and we're immortal, I document that the then defense minister recognized the rifle with a kind of a slow sinking sensation. He realized that one of his home rifles was involved in the assassination. He apparently asked uh, de his defense intelligence to examine the uh, widespread sales of, of Manlicher Hercanus. And the document indicates a 7.35 and 6.5s, and uh, 7.35s were barreled down to 6.5, were distributed all across uh, the, um, the globe, including into Canada and uh, the northern United States. So that was the first time that the, that the, the rifle was exactly uh, indicated as the kind of rifle it was. Robert Frazier was absolutely correct in identifying it as a 7.35 rebarrel down to, down to 6.5. One of the major problems, I think you know, Gary, uh, looking at the materials of the Warren report, is that there are four, four lengths to the rifle. There is a 41-plus inch rifle, there is a 40-inch rifle, a 39-inch rifle, and a 36-inch rifle. There's no getting around it. There are important problems about the length of the rifle. Now, uh, Robert Frazier with the FBI is consistent in calling it a 40.2-inch rifle. The problem is that, that a number of the rifles that we're talking about, at least a rifle photograph throughout the 26 volumes in the Warren Report, is not 40.2 inches. There is a ruler inside the photograph. It's, it's a, approximately 39. And the rifle that Lee Harvey Oswald, if, if, if he is the man, Alec Hedell, who ordered the rifle in February of 1963, if he ordered that rifle and it were delivered to his post office box, and if he took possession of it, that rifle would only be 36 inches long. And one of the problems, as I think you know, is that he supposedly carried a small package underneath his arm. It is impossible to disassemble a 40-inch rifle so that it can be carried uh, nestled in the palm of your hand and go underneath your arm. But you can disassemble a 36-inch sporterized rifle. And there is some evidence that uh, someone was firing a 36-inch sporterized rifle at, uh, at the, uh, the dome uh, rifle range uh, from September through November. Uh, the, the problems of the rifle are many and have not been resolved. Uh, I, I admire um, um, Francis O'Neill's, I think it takes courage, to, uh, to in fact stand before us and publicly say he does not believe in the single bullet theory. I think that's one of the uh, important reasons why we honor his presence here today. But he's absolutely wrong, I'm sorry, about the chain of evidence on the rifle. It is a broken chain of evidence. As I say, and let me just uh, summarize it, the Warren Commission was unable to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald and only Lee Harvey Oswald ordered, took delivery of, possessed, practiced, transported a rifle to the depository, carried that rifle to the depository sixth floor, and fired that rifle. There is absolutely no chain of evidence in, uh, linking Lee Harvey Oswald with the reported alleged uh, found rifle on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. There are lots of other problems primarily, it seems to me, in, in uh, evidentiary concerns. When I did my rifle examination, I stuck only to the Warren Report, the 26 volumes, and the documents I could receive, receive from the FBI. I share with Francis O'Neill uh, my uh, concern for evidence developed very late, which is why uh, and later I hope I get a chance to talk about uh, uh, a major part of the new book which will take into account ballistic, spectrographic, neutron activation analysis, and fragment analysis 
based nearly wholly on FBI reports. I assure you, the name of the chapter is No More Magic Bullet. It relies nearly entirely on FBI reports that I think Francis O'Neill will find persuasive in, in supporting his argument that the magic bullet was not involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy in terms of the single bullet theory. Um, uh, just uh, uh, one or two statements. I'm not an apologist for the Warren Report. I'm not an apologist for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Federal Bureau of Investigation does not need an apologist. This book is out of print right now. This is the summary of the Warren Report. You don't have to go to 26 volumes of the Warren Report to find chain of evidence. You'll find it right in this book. From the information which was obtained relative to the ordering of the weapon, the purchase of the weapon, the reception of the weapon, the weapon being taken into the uh, book repository by the Harvey Oswald, the finding of the weapon, and the testing of the weapon. Bob Fraser is a very close friend of mine and one of the most astute examiners in uh, rifles that this government has ever had. Bear in mind now, we're not going with uh, spectrograph machines or we're not going with the uh, different things which are available to individuals today. We're basing this information on information and the state of the art which was available 30 years ago. Nothing to this date has disproved most of the information in the Warren Report. And I'll stand by that. If I'm wrong, prove it in court. Identification of the sixth floor rifle. Uh, was identified, I understand, by three deputy officers and Captain Will Fritz as a Mauser. Uh, this would be Officers Weitzman, Boone, and Craig. Officer Roger Craig was asked, how did you know it was a Mauser? And uh, Officer Craig said, because it said Mauser on it. Uh, again, we have to go take, take the word of an eyewitness who said, he saw the word Bowser stamp on the rifle. As far as carrying in the rifle that day, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald hitched a ride uh, into work with his uh, uh, partner, worked in the Book Depository building also, uh, uh, Wesley Frazier. Uh, Frazier would drive in because uh, Oswald didn't know how to drive, he didn't have a car. On the morning of the assassination, Oswald carried in a package, a paper package, and Frazier was asked, how big was it? And Frazier said, well, he thought it was about 24, 25 inches long. Did you see Oswald carry the package in? He said, yes, I did. He was in front of me. I was behind him. Would you show us how... Oswald carried the package in that day. <clears throat> Frazier testified that Oswald put the package underneath his armpit and cupped 
the bottom of the package with his fingers and walked in with it like this into the book depository building. Now we know that when the Manica Carcano, which was found, when it's broken down, it's approximately 35 inches long. This is a yardstick. Take an inch off the yardstick, we have 35 inches. Oswald would have had to have carried in this package like this. Now, he, he had it cupped. He had the package cupped underneath according to the eyewitness. Oswald could not have carried in the package, cupping his hand underneath that package if it was 35 inches long, which the Manica Carcano is when it's broken down. About a half hour before the rifle was found on the sixth floor, a videotape was allegedly taken of some commotion up on the fire escape near the roof of the Texas School Book Depository building. Two police officers were yelling down to their partners on Houston Street that something was found on the roof of the Book Depository building. This was at four minutes before one o'clock. 1256, uh, 25 minutes before a rifle was found on the sixth floor of the book depository building. Video which was taken about a half hour after the assassinations. I hear the two police officers up on top. <coughs> the police officers are yelling down that we found a rifle on the roof. This is at four minutes before one o'clock, long before the rifle was found on the sixth floor. A man by the name of Mr. Mentasana took this video and Mr. McCammon also took photographs of this. There was a lot of excitement in the Dallas Police Department office because a rifle was found. A reporter for the Fort Worth Star Telegram, Waldo Thayer, was in the police office when this happened. He verified this story. He verified the rifle being found. Mr. Mentesana took a video of the happenings when this rifle was found at approximately four minutes before one o'clock, long before any rifle was found on the sixth floor. What you'll have to look for, two police officers yelling down, they found something on the roof, and then you'll have to look very quickly, it's not a, a long segment, it's too bad we can't still action it for you, but you'll see police officers, detectives around this rifle, you'll see the rifle barrel sticking out of the group and they're all looking at it and the caption is assassination <coughs> rifle. I have two police officers calling attention to the roof and here's the rifle. Whatever happened to this rifle we don't know. It was never turned in as evidence. Police officials said possibly what it was was security for the president up on the roof of the book depository building and that the uh, security officer inadvertently left it on the roof uh, when he left uh, his post. To this day, we don't know what happened to that rifle. We don't know uh, if it still exists. Uh, a lot of questions are unanswered about the rifle uh, or rifles found in the book repository building that day. Thank you. I think that uh, what I can comment on here, by the way, I, I probably represent the viewpoint of many of you sitting in the audience, and that is having a fascination and an interest with um, the assassination and the findings as a result of it, 
but certainly not having the kind of accumulated knowledge that our panelists have here today. Um, probably between them, there's close to 90 years of accumulated worth of <laughs> <laughs> age experience in thinking about this. Um, but what is fascinating for, for me to observe, and, and those of you who are in evidence class, I hope you're making the same observations, is the process that people go through in attempting to determine what really happened um, at the assassination. And the process in, in determining truth, which is what we're all here about, is like this. Um, we all, and a fact finder in a trial or in an investigative process, sees evidence. And that's what you're hearing tonight. You're hearing about evidence related to the assassination. From the evidence, the fact finder determines facts. And you can see, I think, by the process that's going on here tonight, is that even facts, the facts that people arrive at based on viewing evidence can be different. From those facts, certain inferences are drawn as to what actually occurred, as to what the truth is. And I suggest to you that you think about that process as you hear our speakers tonight. I have some specific questions. First, for uh, Professor Ivica concerning the rifle. You've talked about the fact that um, rifles of various lengths were identified um, as being being the rifle used by by Lee Harvey Oswald. What is the inference that you want us to draw from that process in in determining truth, which is what we're all here about, is like this. Um, we all, and a fact finder in a trial or in an investigative process, sees evidence. And that's what you're hearing tonight. You're hearing about evidence related to the assassination. From the evidence, the fact finder determines facts. And you can see, I think, by the process that's going on here tonight, is that even facts, the facts that people arrive at based on viewing evidence, can be different. From those facts, certain inferences are drawn as to what actually occurred, as to what the truth is. And I suggest to you that you think about that process as you hear our speakers tonight. I have some specific questions. First, for uh, Professor Ivica concerning the rifle. You've talked about the fact that um, rifles of various lengths were identified um, as being, being the rifle used by by Lee Harvey Oswald. What is the inference that you want us to draw from that evidence? What is the fact you want us to find, and then the inference you think ought to be drawn uh, from the fact? Since questions are raised about the identity of the reputed assassination rifle, every attempt should be made to re-examine the process by which charges were brought against Lee Harvey Oswald relative to his the purchase of and delivery to possession of and the use of, of the rifle. Um, there are um, problems in the presentation of evidence. For example, he was supposed to have ordered it from a February 1963 uh, edition of One Rifle uh, magazine but the uh, Warren Commission used a November 63 edition of another rifle magazine 
because the November issue had a, a rifle between 39 and 40 inches long. Had it used the February 63 um, magazine, from which it said the Harvey Oswald had torn a coupon and sent in the money for the rifle, they would have found that if that rifle had indeed been sent to the Harvey Oswald, and he, if he indeed took possession of it, it would have been only 36 inches long. And the rifle that was uh, discovered, allegedly, or reputedly, in the, uh, in the depository, the rifle that was uh, examined by Robert Frazier, and the rifle that is pictured in the Warren Report in the, in the in 26 volumes, is not 36 inches long. So we'd have to re-examine the basis upon which the argument was made. This is why I call it the, the entire uh, rifle story a series of um, uh, broken chains of evidence. So uh, it seems to me that that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to send us back to the drawing board in terms of chain of evidence and re-examination of that evidence. Um, our federal rules of evidence, which were not adopted in 1964, and, and even if they had been, probably would not have been utilized necessarily by, necessarily by the Warren Commission in, in making their findings. But at any rate, any rate the, the rules define what relevant evidence is. And relevant evidence is defined as evidence which has any tendency to make a fact of consequence more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. So in, in terms of what would be admissible in a court of law, initially, any evidence that would help us determine what occurred in the assassination, or whether, depending on what the issue is, or whether Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin, would be admissible. Then the, then the rest of the rules go on uh, to uh, determine what types of evidence may not be reliable and therefore excludable because the evidence isn't reliable or trustworthy. Once relevant evidence is admitted, though, a fact finder goes about assessing probative value to the evidence. How much persuasive force does the evidence have? And at least now with regard to chain of custody, for example, the standard for admissibility of any evidence, and what we're talking about here is authenticating evidence, that is establishing that the gun that the Warren Commission considers was actually the rightful used by Lee Harvey Oswald, the standard is whether there's evidence sufficient to support a finding by the fact finder that the gun actually is the one that we consider today. Um, now, there may be other, so in other words, the chain of custody doesn't have to be unbroken in order for evidence to be admissible at a trial. There only has to be sufficient evidence um, to support a finding that the gun is what it is. Now, one may argue, however, that chain, that breaks in the chain might be so significant as to render the evidence unreliable. And I think that's the inference you want us to draw here. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just add that in the absence then of the chain, which would not necessarily disallow the rifle as, as evidence, we would then look for things like um, admissible evidence on ballistics. That is, can we in fact link that rifle Two ballistics recovered in the assassination, and so that was my. After working on the on the rifle story for the first book, I'm now working on the, the ballistics. That is, given the possibility that the rifle may or may not have been involved, can ballistics and supportive evidence argue in fact that the, the rifle was still involved? The spectrographic documents were made before the cover story was laid down were made by the FBI laboratory, which Mr. Francis O'Neill says is one of the greatest in the world. And I, pardon? The 
the greatest, all right? If we accept, if we accept that analysis, then I'm working with documentation that there is no single bullet theory, that it is forever displaced by the truth. Uh, number two, CE399, the basis for all inspectors' single bullet theory, could not be linked to any wounds suffered by either Kennedy or Connolly. That's not my conclusion. Those are the spectroscopists' analysis of spectrographic reports from the FBI. And third, the bullet recovered in the assassination attempt on, on General Walker does not match any of the ballistics uh, allegedly recovered in the Kennedy Connolly shooting. In other words, that bullet cannot be linked to, uh, ballistically or spectrographically to the assassination. <clears throat> now, let's take up what I think Mr. Uh, uh, O'Neill has not heard, and that is um, the uh, conclusions of about a 100-piece a new uh, examination, evidentiary examination, of the bullets involved, allegedly involved in the assassination. Ballistics. Earliest FBI ballistic tests, incompletely reported to the Warren Commission, failed to link the depository rifle with CE-399 or with any of the fragments reportedly recovered from John Connolly, John F. Kennedy, and the presidential limousine. The Warren Commission conclusions based on those FBI ballistic tests attempting to link the so-called depository rifle to CE-399 and to fragments recovered from the presidential lim limousine were therefore invalid. Warren Commission members themselves at the hearings watched Robert Frazier attempt to argue for Kenner identity using uh, slide, microscopic slides and they, they were at best dubious of his presentation since they could not see the connections that he was ballistically making. The uh, worst job was done by Mr. Nickel, the, the second expert brought before them. So, in fact, what we have is the Warren Commissioners themselves not believing their own experts. That's on the record. Ballistics tests reportedly run by the House Select Committee on Assassinations failed to match 399 with the depository rifle. There is no evidentiary link between the ballistics now in the possession of the federal government and the, and the uh, uh, so-called depository rifle. Spectrographics. Earliest FBI spectrographic analysis only incompletely reported to the Warren Commission failed to link CE-399 to any fragment allegedly associated with the Kennedy assassination. Forensic description, you heard it before. Uh, I'm not relying on, on speculation. I'm relying on Robert Frazier's testimony under oath that no bone, no fragment, no blood, nothing was on that bullet. It was absolutely clean. It's a forensic impossibility. Uh, uh, by the way, I also have CE-399 lost 0.9 grains of weight while in the possession of the government. We can prove it because I have the weight prior to, uh, just after, Frazier handled the bullet, and when the House Select Committee on Assassinations waited, it lost 0.9 grains, strongly suggesting manipulation of ballistic evidence. Newton activation analysis, 1963 Newton activation analysis. Again, the FBI lab did it. Disproves the single bullet theory. CE 399 did not have anything to do with the assassination. Conclusions The earliest FBI ballistic, spectrographic, and neutron activation analysis failed to link CE 399 to the killing of Kennedy or to the wounding of Connolly. Failed to link the so called depository rifle to any of the ballistics reportedly recovered. And three, established that no fewer than four bullets were fired in Dealey Plaza. 
I don't know if you know this, but nothing now in the possession of the government in the National Archives ballistically matches the rifle allegedly found in the depository. There is no ballistic link, period, and I can prove it. Let me show the Zapruder film right now um, and go into the single bullet theory. You go into the single bullet theory uh, and analyze the time constraints under which the firing of the shots had to take place. You'll see the jump. He slows it down so that you can see what's happening inside the, um, the limo. That's a fight or flight position on the part of the president. He's not grasping his throat. Fight or flight. Asymmetric fists. You will notice how slowly that goes by Zapruder. This is a slow down film. The reason we now know is that Greer applied the brakes. The brake lights, in fact, show. As the, the, the uh, limousine is fired on right now, Greer puts on the brakes rather than go forward. If he had uh, stepped on the gas, he had seven seconds to go before the president was hit in the head. He might have saved the president's life. As it was, he is braking right now. It's down to about uh, five miles per hour. It goes by uh, Zapruder right now. There's the fight or flight position. The president is probably getting the throat, getting the back. This is uh, uh, from the opposite side. Uh, I'd like to uh, fast forward. Can you fast forward through this until we get to another version of the Zapruder film? I'll tell you when. That's the umbrella man and the dark-complected so-called man raising his fist. It's another story. We just want to take a look at the Zapruder film, which still represents, there it is again, slow motion, the fight or flight position. There's Connolly reacting much later than the president to a hit that goes through his body, at least one bullet, possibly two. Rotoscoping. He took every frame of the film and refocused it. Then he made, in effect, a new film with very little zip to it, very little movement in it. You can fast forward again. We might have still one more version of it. The Zapruder film is the timing of the assassination. The, the uh, Warren Commission, the Hospital Committee on Assassination, and most of the researchers timed the assassination from the first apparent response of the president to being hit to uh, Z313, the apparent hit to the president's head. Within that time, it's time enough for three shots, not four, from the bolt action man like Carcano. So four shots means conspiracy. You have to do everything within three shots, within the timing that the Zapruder film gives us. I was the agent assigned to Andrews Air Force Base. I had been out there for many times. I was out there when Eisenhower was the president, when Kennedy was the president, when uh, Johnson was the president, and when Nixon was the president. I used to meet the president's plane, take off and return, not all the time, but many occasions. I had jurisdiction over Air Force One. Air Force One was the plane that the president rode on. It could have been anything, but any plane the president rides on is Air Force One. At this particular time, I would think it was a uh, DC-10, uh, 36,000, something like that. When I heard that the president had been shot, 
I called up my office in Baltimore and told them that I was going out to Andrews Air Force Base to take care of any jurisdiction that the FBI might have. Number one, crimes on government reservations. Number two, theft of government property. Number three, espionage. Number four, uh, sabotage. Number five, assaulting federal officers. Remember, we did not have a federal statute at that time saying that it was a federal crime to assassinate the President of the United States. It would have been a murder in the jurisdiction where the particular crime occurred. Went out to Andrews, spoke to Robert T. Best, who was in my report. I'm sure that most of you have seen that report. If not, I have it up here. Who was the provost marshal. Told him that the plane was coming out to Andrews. They were not aware that the plane was coming to Andrews. We found out about it. We told them. We told that to the base commander. We also told it to the individual who was the uh, um, uh, base commander, the provost marshal, and the judge advocate who, by the way, was also from my law school, I mean, from my college. Uh, I had good contacts out there. So what we did was, we let as many people come on the base as we could, and when the enough uh, people were on there, they decided, wait a minute, let's close it down. This place is being inundated with people. The only people who were allowed on the base thereafter were the members of Congress, the members of the diplomatic staff who were still in Washington, D.C., the members of the Supreme Court, any members of the, uh, of the, uh, the cabinet, which were not already flying out to Japan, since most of them were on that particular plane, and the press and the newsreel cameras. We got word that the plane was going to land about 6 o'clock. About a moment after it landed, which would have been about 6.01 or something like that, while it was still out of the far extents of Andrews Air Force Base, I got advised by the head of the uh, OSI on the base that Mr. Hoover had called and directed me to call my office in Baltimore. I called Baltimore and the word was Hoover said, stay with the body and get whatever information you can find there which might indicate a crime, which might indicate some evidence of a crime which had been committed. Fine. Spoke right away to Jim Raleigh, who was the director of Secret Service. Told him what Hoover had told me to do. He put me into the car, the second car of the motorcade, with Pamela Turner, who was the second, who was the press secretary to uh, Mrs. Kennedy, and with the White, uh, White House of Ballet at that time. Bear in mind now, at this particular time, Bobby Kennedy had come to the base. He walked up the stairs. He walked to the back of the plane. The back of the plane opened up, and you'll see that he's there with the Jacqueline Kennedy, Kenny O'Donnell, and I think one or two other individuals, and they're assisting moving the casket out of the plane put it onto this great big dolly, which was up in the air there. Remember something else. Colonel Best was the provost marshal in charge of Andrews Air Force Base, and he directed, prior to the landing of the plane, that the plane be ringed by air policemen to prevent anybody who was not authorized getting near the plane, which completely debunks something in the book by Mr. Clifton, who says that they switched caskets and took a casket out the other side of the plane. If that had occurred, anybody who did that would be dead. Those men were on the Tommy Zones, Tommy, uh, excuse me, M3s. So there was no possibility of anything coming from the other side of the plane. They took the body in the casket out, came down, they got into the, uh, into the ambulance, and took off for Andrews Air Force Base. I was in the second car, the motorcade, as I mentioned, we went out through the various ways, out to the air base itself. They went out to the uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. At Bethesda, the honor uh, guard were lined up on the side. The uh, ambulance came in, 
parked in front of the main building. Mrs. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy got up, went up to the 17th and 19th floor. Larry O'Brien stayed in front, who's the Postmaster General. Kenny O'Donnell was there, and one or two other individuals. After a moment or two, myself and Jim Seibert got out of our car, went up, and said, what's the delay? They said, well, we don't know where the autopsy room is. We told them what we did, and we had been there many times before. So we got into our car, drove around the back, the ambulance followed us, and we parked right at the autopsy room, or the morgue, right at the back there. At this time, the two Secret Service agents who were in the car with Kennedy, Roy Kellman and Bill Greer, came out and met us. I told him who I was. He said, I know. I got a radio message already from uh, Jim Raleigh. The four of us opened the back of the ambulance, and we took the casket out and put it on a dolly, or a carriage, whatever you want to call it, and started to move it on in. It was that time that the honor guard assisted us in moving it on in, into the door of the back of the Bethesda Hospital, opened the door going into the autopsy room. At that time, there was a little ante room, say, well, a, a morgue, as I recall, it was a little child in one of the slabs. Opened the door, taking out it into the autopsy room, took it off the dolly, uh, put it on every one of the tables, opened the casket, and the medical personnel took it out, took it out, took the body out. We were right there with it, and as you go with a group of people, everybody tries to do something. So everybody is helping, taking that body out and putting it on the, putting it on the table. At that time, it was in sort of a plastic type container, because after they took that off, the body was wrapped in a sheet, another sheet around the head, saturated, saturated with blood. The president was. Uh, naked, and he was uh, lying uh, on his back with his eyes open, two eyes open, like that. His mouth was a little bit opened also, his hands were clutched. At that time, they asked those personnel who were not directly involved in taking pictures, nor directly involved in taking the uh, x-rays, to go outside of the room until the x-rays and the pictures were taken. We went outside the room. However, the door to the room had a, uh, a glass partition, so you could stand outside in this little morgue area and view everything which was going on in the room, which we did. When that was completed, we went back inside, they cleaned up the body, they washed it down, and they started to perform the autopsy. At that time, there was Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell, who were the two autopsy surgeons. At a subsequent time, Colonel Fink, who was a lieutenant colonel in the army, he came in. But at the beginning of the autopsy were those two gentlemen. Also there were various personnel from the Navy. Navy, not Army, not Air Force. One exception, please. There was General Godfrey McHugh, who was the pilot of the President's plane. He's also was his, uh, let me rephrase that, not the pilot, but it was his Air Force attache. Uh, he was there, in there, in uniform, nobody else from the military other than the naval personnel, Admiral Galloway, Captain Stover, these people were members of the, there were also some people from the Naval Medical Center, which were on a small little balcony 
not really a knock, and he got two steps, watching down what was going on. Well, they performed the necessary things at the beginning. They uh, start off by saying a white male, uh, so much, uh, so tall, measured, etc. They uh, did the V-shape on him. They did the whole jazz in front. They took out the various things on the inside of the body. Uh, looking at this particular incident, it was quite evident, quite evident, that there was a wound in the throat. It was quite evident, according to the doctors. Now, I am not a medical man. My expertise is in law and investigations. And anything which I put in my report concerning the viewing of the body or concerning what it was or what was said was told to me. And they said, that is a tracheotomy. And it's in my report that it was apparent that there was a tracheotomy. And it was. They viewed that, looked at that, discussed things. But everybody was concerned with this massive wound back here. Oh, by the way, the president's face was not disturbed in any way. The front of his face was perfect. Nothing came from in front to hit him anywhere on his face. Nothing came from the side to hit him here or here or anywhere. I don't know whether you'd call this what type of evidence. I saw it. I was there. I reported it. It's been documented. Okay? But this wound really got everybody. It was massive. Right back in this area here. Uh, the brain was there. There was some conjecture that the brain was removed to some place God knows where. The x-ray shows that the brain was there. Uh, the brain was taken out. There were several particles that were removed. A matter of fact, the x-ray shows there were about 40 different particles of a bullet which exploded in the brain, or if not a bullet which exploded in the brain, particles of the skull which were driven into it as a result of the, the bullet which hit the back. The two particles were taken out, given to me, and to Cyber. We signed a receipt for it. We signed a receipt for a missile because in naval terminology, mostly everything is called a missile. You'll see that terminology used in the Warren Report to the missile. A lot of people say, well, look at this big difference here. They're signing for a missile when in fact they were fragments. Sure. I know what I'm signing for. There were two fragments. If they want to call the missiles, call the missiles. Makes no difference to me. It's the same thing. A horse is a horse is a horse. A rose is a rose is a rose. All right? After they look at this, after they see this massive thing here, with a part of the flap coming out, very disturbing. I had seen autopsies before, but never one of the President of the United States. The important thing, we now flip the body over, and looking at the back of the body. Must remember one thing. The body was never turned over in Dallas. Never turned over in Dallas. So when the body was turned over on the table in Bethesda, they noticed a wound. And a matter of fact, it was Agent Jim Sider, who was the very first one, who noticed a wound in the upper back strap muscle over here. And in my report, I give exactly where it was located from the definition that the autopsy surgeons gave me. It was a couple inches down or two inches down from the midline or something in that particular way. That's not me saying that. That's the autopsy surgeon saying that. So it was a very small wound. And I was standing right next to the doctors when he's probing it. 
with his finger. And there was no point of exit. None. Absolutely couldn't go any further. Any how far, uh, how deep was the wound, would you fascinate? Once again, I could not measure it, but he did not put his whole finger in by any way. He put in his smaller finger, I think it went to about a quarter of the way in, maybe a halfway in. So about an inch, inch and a half? Something of that gentle vein. I don't know whether they say that in their own report or not. Uh, I don't say it in mine, but they tried to find, they could find no point of exit, absolutely none, at that particular time. Now this caused everybody to be concerned. Well, let me just go back a bit too. When they first started the autopsy, being an investigator, Jim Sagan, myself, Bill Kellerman, and Roy, uh, uh, Roy Kellerman and Bill Greer, wanted a full autopsy. The uh, General Berkeley, who was the president's physician, said, Mrs. Kennedy has only given permission for a partial autopsy. Well, to me, that's defective because you'd like to get the full autopsy to find out what happened. An autopsy has to be a complete autopsy. I have no authority to tell that to these Navy personnel. We spoke to General uh, Admiral Galloway, who was the commanding officer of the Naval Medical Center, advised him, and then with the concurrence of the doctors and with the Bureau personnel and Secret Service, he directed him, he, who was the head of the Naval Medical Center, that a full autopsy be performed. All right, now, we're in the autopsy. We finally got this little bullet wound in the back of the neck, or the back of the upper back strap muscle. Excuse me, uh, how, yes. how many inches would you estimate uh, from the neck? I would not estimate it all, but whatever it is is in my report on page 40, you can see right in there. A short distance, uh, over to the right-hand side here. And uh, all of a sudden, we're trying to say, was it a magic bullet? Is it an ice bullet? Is there some type of a particular bullet which could occur, go in, and uh, melt? What happened to it? Don't know. Jim Sivert leaves at that time and says, I will go out and make a telephone call to our laboratory to find out what the situation was. Jim goes out, makes the call, comes back in, and he says, they just told me when I called our laboratory that they found a bullet on a stretcher in Dallas. Now they didn't say whose stretcher it was. And we don't know that in Bethesda, whether it's Governor Conley's or whether it's the uh, stretcher that the uh, president was on. And to this day, to this day, nobody knows whether it was Governor Conley's or whether it was the stretcher that the president was on. So Jim comes back in and tells the autopsy surgeons, who are now standing there saying, what happened? Where could it be? You had the x-rays, right? So there was no... <coughs> we had the x-rays at that time. The x-rays were taken, brought back on, and we observed them. We looked at them. From the x-rays which we saw, there was no point where that bullet went in. You couldn't even see, matter of fact, where the, where the uh, uh, entry was. It was the, they were x-rays. There are x-rays and there are x-rays. You know what I mean? All right? So, we're looking at the situation. Jim comes back in, and the doctors say, Whoa! Now we know what happened. They knew that external cardiac massage had been performed in Dallas. They knew that for a fact. And the doctor said, Dr. Humes, what does that explain to He says, that bullet worked its way out through external cardiac massage. There is no other explanation for it. None. Absolutely none. The bullet could not go in any further. That was it. Then they completed the autopsy itself. And at the very end, he says, well, now we know exactly what occurred. 
There was a bullet which was fired, which went into the back and worked its way out. There was another bullet that was fired. We don't know what happened to that. And I don't know what happened to that. I have a good conjecture what happened to that. And the last bullet hit the president's head and went away, she blows. A little bit later, during the autopsy, later stages of the autopsy, they bring in, they being the Sacred Service, bring in another portion of a skull, which was found in Dallas, in the car. And it turns out that that could be matched almost perfectly with the part of the missing, part of the missing skull in the head, and this belting on that, which coincided with the belting on the, on the, on the, uh, in the president's, back of the president's head here. The morticians come in. They drain the body. They powder the body. They shave the body. They fixed it so that you would think he had eyes. They closed his eyes. They went ahead and uh, prepared the body for burial. They even sent back to the White House to get the underwear to put it on the president. There was nothing further done. Quite frankly, there was nothing further that could be done at that time for the president. The autopsy was over. The autopsy is completed. And the doctors, the three of them, all stated what I had just told you. That was the way it was. Now, the next morning, oh by the way, we took the fragments of the bullets, I guess sometime around 1, 30, 4 or 2 in that general area. I'm not certain what it was. To me, that day, time was irrelevant. I didn't even call my wife. She didn't know where I was. Somebody said he's with the president. She's oh my god, which one? And then she went to two. We uh, took it out, went out to Andrews Air Force Base, picked up our cars, went back home, went up the wall, and once at a good time. But early in the morning of the 23rd, it was Dr. Hume's call down to Dr. Perry, Dallas, Texas. And hearsay has it, hearsay has it that at that time, the doctor was explaining what he found up in Bethesda, and Perry says, well, what about the wound in the throat? And Hume says, well, it was a tracheotomy. He says, yes, we performed the tracheotomy over a wound in the throat. Now put yourself in the, in the shoes of the autopsy surgeons. The body's gone. Body's back in the White House or in the rotunda of the Capitol. And you have to make an autopsy report with no body. It's gone. You have to explain the wound in the throat. Now, according to certain aspects in the Warren report, the doctors said that after a while they reviewed certain things and they determined that, that there was a bullet wound in the back and it worked its way through a particular strap muscles and it went into the throat and came out the throat. Alrighty. At this time, nobody knows anything about a single bullet theory. They don't know whether it was one, two, three, most probably three bullets. They don't know what bullet, if any, went into Connolly. Uh, that's the way it was at that particular time. Months later, I wrote my report, by the way, we had a rule in the FBI, and still is, and a good one, that anything has to be reported within five days so that the information will not be stale. And you can use your notes, which I use at the end of the five days, to complete a report with Jim Sider. The both of us put it down. We both signed the report and used the report and sent it in. That became part of the larger report 
of the, uh, I think the Yanks from Dallas, Dallas was always of Oregon in that particular situation, uh, incorporating our report. We know that the report got to the Warren Commission, but who was the Warren Commission? The Warren Commission was composed of people appointed by the President, uh, the President of the United States, Johnson. But they were very fastidious men, they were very good men, but they had other jobs too. This, we had the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court on there. So the bulk of the work, the bulk of the sifting of the investigation reports was done by their assistants, young, eager attorneys. One in particular is the present senator from Pennsylvania, Paul Inspector. And one fine day, Paul Inspector called myself and Jim Seibert up to be interviewed concerning our report which he seemed to have some problems with because it just didn't jive with a theory that he had. Theory that he had. So we went in there, we were talking, there were some things which we discussed now, but there were some other things happened. We sat there, we talked, and we told him about it. And he says, well, are you sure that this happened? Just as sure as sitting here talking to you, Mr. Speck. By the way, he had been a young second lieutenant OSI, thought he knew everything about investigations at that particular time. I think he still thinks he knows everything about investigations. So he was, uh, he was asking us questions and we told him exactly what I told you here. In fact, I went back to my office in Washington and was interviewed by several individuals of the higher echelons in the Bureau and told them exactly what happened and that is incorporated in various memorandums which went to Mr. Hoover at a subsequent time. Uh, we got to remember this now, the President of the United States had put a time limit on the time when the Warren Commission would have to finish their report. It was getting near the end of that. Our inspector was pressing, pressing, pressing for the single bullet theory. Because this time they knew that Kennedy had been hit, and they also knew that our good friend Mr. Johnson had been hit. They also knew that uh, there was a bullet found on a particular stretcher. So he sold the single bullet theory to the Warren Commission. I know for a fact that Hal Bobbs, Lord of Mercy, I'm not alive today, was upset with it. I know that Jer Jerry Ford was upset with it. There were several members of the Warren Commission that didn't like that particular theory at all. There was no a minority report put out on the Warren Commission report. But the final thing was that the Warren Commission as a whole, because of the context of time, went ahead and accepted the single bullet theory. I do not buy that. I cannot buy that. Because what I saw and what I heard does not coincide with that. Now let me say something else. The FBI does not draw conclusions. We do not, you will not find in any of our report a conclusion what we do is present the evidence to that agency or to that group of people who requested the investigation. And that investigation then, I mean the results of that investigation, the conclusion is drawn by the people who read our reports. That's what happened. That's not conjecture. Oh, look at one very important thing. A couple of days after the uh, uh, shooting of uh, Oswald, the burial of the president, we were directed to go to the White House to interview these Secret Service agents again, which we did do. We did do. 
The information which they furnished us was very, very similar to the information which they gave us five days earlier, which was just five or six hours afterwards. One very peculiar thing. Roy Kellerman said he had been with the president for about three years. He says, quite frankly, Frank, they were on a first-name basis with the president. It was Jack and it was Roy when there was nobody around, one-on-one, -on one-on-two. When anybody else was around, it was Mr. President. Naturally, it was Mr. President. Frank, he, weren't you concerned about the transmission of 399? Weren't you asking the Secret Service about I didn't ask them a single word about that. It was not within my purview at that time. In fact, they didn't even number 399. They were telling me things I didn't know today. Oh. No, I knew 399, but these other numbers, no, we didn't ask anything. However, this is what Kellerman said. He says, when that first shot happened, first shot, Somebody in the back seat said, my God, I've been hit. I said, who said that? He said, Jack Kennedy. I said, how do you know who Jack Kennedy said? He said, Frank, there was only one person in that back seat with a distinctive Boston accent. And that was Jack Kennedy. My God, I've been hit. Now, if you take the Warren report and the bullet goes in here, first bullet now, goes in here and work this way on through and comes out the throat and does a great job. I think that any physician who might be here possibly would say that goodbye vocal cords. And you can't say, my God, up and hit. And in this particular situation, I have to agree with George Michael here that that bullet which was found on the stretch in Dallas is not the bullet which went through the president's neck. I firmly believe, to this day, that the first bullet went into the president and worked out. There is no creditable evidence to refute that. None. Absolutely none. And tremendous circumstantial evidence to say that that's what happened. But here's where I differ with a lot of other people. The second bullet did calmly. And the third bullet said goodbye here. Now we also know that something came out of the neck. Something did come out of the neck. I say out of the neck. Because all of the doctors who saw that, when they got in front of the Warren Commission, under oath, when in Dallas, they all say, well, it was probable or possible that it could have been a woman exit, and also possible it could have been a woman entry. Every single doctor. I don't know who this doctor is who's coming out in 2020 tomorrow. But he's not mentioned in the Warren report. Did he actually? Uh, they, didn't call, they didn't call him to testify. They never called him to testify. Oh, you can say anything. We don't call him to testify. You can get your name in a book anytime you want because he's writing a book. So I would look with a jaundice eye at this particular individual who evidently has not done too much research on it. But that's up to you to make your decisions on that. You make the decisions. Remember when I said that the top of the head was gone, this section here? That's a fact. I've already said there were many different things inside the head, many different parts. I think it's logical to conclude that if there was a wound in the throat, and if something came out from the inside and not the outside, and if it wasn't very large as the nick on the tie shows and as the nick on the collar shows, regardless of what any nurse might say that she cut something on one side and cut the tie off, she didn't cut right in the bow, it's quite logical to assume that that particular fragment came out through the throat. Quite logical. Unless proven otherwise. 
But there are many, many theories. What happened to the other woman? I don't know. No idea. Nor does anybody else know. But I can assure you, with metaphysical certitude, looking at the face of the president, there is no conceivable way that a shot could have come from the front and hit him. Looking at the president, viewing it, and looking at the medical evidence, no possible way that something could come from the side and hit him. Only one conclusion, that the bullets came from the up and above, in the rear, to the right. If, if for the sake of discussion, you would think that there was a conspiracy, it would have to have been the most marvelously conceived conspiracy in the world. 28 years, no proof of any conspiracy. Number one. Number two, <laughs> if you're going to have a conspiracy with assassins, you would think that they would have the most expert shots available. Good shots, super marksmen, telescopic sights, to make sure they hit what they aimed at. If they paid for that type of marksman, they didn't get it, because nothing hit the president from the front, and nothing hit him anywhere other than in one particular place where he was hit. Uh, I've bored you enough with this. I've just told you what facts I know. Uh, I'm sure that uh, many people will refute them. That's your privilege. But I can go to my grave knowing that there's only one person who did it, and that was the Javi Oswald. What conjecture all you want? Have all your theories. You'll never get into a court of law. You'll never have to prove otherwise. We'll ask the questions later, I'm sure. George, uh, what I'd like to do at this point oh, yes. is uh, I have a few comments also on um, tying into your uh, analysis of the wound in the back of the neck uh, being only shallow, and then I'd like to have Bill respond to you know another interpretation of what that might be. Um, and we want to start wrapping this up in about uh, 10 minutes or so and give you a chance to ask some questions uh, for about 10-15 minutes. Uh, we're going to have a reception afterwards, so if you don't have a chance to ask a question, uh, right now you can uh, mingle with and ask questions at the reception. Um, just if I can just try to summarize what what you've said is that the the wound in the back of the neck, which the Warren Commission concluded was the entry wound uh, for the single bullet theory, that the Warren Commission concluded that the bullet went in the back of the neck, came out Kennedy's throat, continued on and caused all of Connolly's injuries. And you're saying that based on what you saw and the doctors all observed, is that the wound in the back of the neck was, it just did not go anywhere? No, I never said the back of the neck. I said the other back. Shoulder. Shoulder. Okay. Uh, and it did not penetrate deeper than uh, an inch or two? Uh, Less than that. Less than that. Okay. Um, the, the doctors, when they testified um, uh, before the Warren Commission, were asked uh, the question. Uh, were questioned by Arlen Specter, uh, as Mr. O'Neill referred to before. And when the Arlen Specter asked the doctor specifically what uh, their opinion was as to whether or not the same bullet could have caused all uh, the wounds to Kennedy's neck, his throat, and all of Governor Connolly's wounds, the single bullet wounds, um, they responded that, in their opinion, it was, quote, most unlikely, unquote, uh, Another quote is uh, extremely unlikely, uh, based on the fact that 
based on their observations, the wound in the back of the neck only went in an inch or so. And uh, the fact that the bullet, the single bullet, uh, emerged virtually intact. Uh, no deformity in the bullet. Um, and to them it was inconceivable that a bullet could have gone through and left lead fragments throughout Kennedy's body and Connolly's body and have emerged virtually intact with a very little weight loss to the bullet at all. Uh, so when they were asked specifically about the uh, possibility or the, or the probability, excuse me, uh, of that bullet causing all of those wounds, they responded most unlikely, extremely unlikely. Uh, so that supports what you're saying, uh, the observations of the wounds. However, like the last question that our inspector uh, posed to the doctors regarding the, uh, the possibility that the, the single bullet theory could explain all those wounds, he asked them, you know, assuming that the rifle was fired uh, from above and behind uh, the president at an angle of approximately 45 degrees and the bullet traveling at 2,000 feet per second, uh, hitting the, the governor, uh, excuse me, hitting the president in the back of the neck, which differs from your observation from having that wound lower in the shoulder. Uh, but they said, assuming it hits in the back of the neck and continues out to the president's throat, it continues on to cause uh, five wounds in Governor Connolly. Don't you think that's it's within the, you know it's possible that a single bullet could have caused all those wounds? And they responded to the effect of it's within the realm of possibility that a bullet could go through there. Given that's given, given you know the assumptions that our inspector asked them to make. Um, but just uh, moments before that question was asked, our inspector was asking the doctors. Specifically, how probable did, it, did they think that that was? And they said, most unlikely, extremely unlikely. Um, however, the Warren Commission, uh, the Warren Report itself, concludes that all of the doctors testified that it was possible for a single bullet to have caused all of those wounds. Yet when the doctors were specifically asked how probable that was, they responded, most unlikely, extremely unlikely. Uh, that one con uh, conclusion based on, on that testimony that the Warren Commission took, uh, just in my mind, is, is not supportable by what the testimony that they claim supports that conclusion. Uh, they say that all the doctors testify that it was possible that that bullet could have caused all those wounds, uh, and yet the doctors said most unlikely, extremely unlikely. Uh, I think that's uh, a good example of, of some of the way some of the conclusions. Uh, don't accurately reflect uh, the underlying testimony uh, that they're relying on. I'd like to give uh, Bill Cheslock a chance to uh, respond to uh, or interpret the fact that this wound in the back of the neck, if it only went in an inch or so, what that might mean with respect to timing of the shots, number of shots, and ultimately the number of gunmen uh, that could I'm not going to belabor the single ball theory for a couple of reasons, uh, we're running out of time and uh, we do want to hear other responses. However, the author of this single bullet theory, as has been mentioned before, Alan Spector, had a very interesting quote about his own theory. He said, no one will believe this today, tomorrow, or next year. That was a quote from the author of the single bullet theory. Now, just what does this mean? If this bullet did not go through President Kennedy and on to Governor Connolly. 
Well, we said this a brutal film is a time clock of the assassination. The Warren Commission agreed that President Kennedy and John Connolly were hit by uh, bullets 1.6 seconds apart. In reenactments of the assassination, world-class riflemen, the best that the National Rifle Association could put forward, the best they could do was 2.3 seconds firing uh, using the bolt action. Now, if the wounds are caused within 1.6 seconds, and the best that, could, that rifle could be shot is only 2.3 seconds between shots, this suggests that there is a possible possibility, a strong possibility, that there is another rifleman back there somewhere firing on the presidential limousine. It could mean nothing else. We can't explain it any other way. Lee Oswald's Marine records show he was a poor rifleman, a poor shot. The best rifleman in the world could not duplicate what the Warren Commission said Lee Harvey Oswald did. 1.6 seconds, seven wounds, two riflemen. Has to be. Thank you. Francis X. O'Neill is again an extremely important witness, and uh, we need to um, hear him when he says that uh, he accompanied the body into the back entrance to Bethesda because Jackie Kennedy went in the front entrance of the body. The body, therefore, either appeared both at the front entrance and the back entrance, or one of those. Um, coffins or caskets, in fact, was empty. Now, I assume that since the back entrance was monitored by Agent Francis X. O'Neill, they opened up the casket and they found the body there, and the radiologist, the x-ray man, who had having taken x-ray photos, x-ray pictures of what he thought was the body of John F. Kennedy, walked through Bethesda with the x-rays underneath his arm, coming in the front door was the ornamental coffin bearing the body of President John F. Kennedy, accompanied by his wife. What x-rays then did he take? So we have a major contradiction, and I don't think um, former agent Francis X. O'Neill is wrong. I think he did, in fact, enter the back entrance of Bethesda with the body of John F. Kennedy. Now, there are other problems. I assure you that every doctor and every nurse who observed the wound in the front of the president's throat, and who made a report on that. Prior to the Warren Report's uh, investigation, observed and reported a small, neat, round hole of entry. And the hole was smaller than a 6.5 millimeter round. The hole was approximately the size of around about this size, maybe a 22. This, this is a 6.5 millimeter round. The hole was smaller than a 6.5 millimeter round. Now, what did Dr. Malcolm Perry do? He did a transverse tracheostomy. Every time I've talked about this, doctors have said they're shaking their head at me. So I talk to the doctors afterwards, and I say, what are you, what are you shaking your head at me? Now we do a vertical tracheostomy, because the vertical can be closed up. 
you're not doing a tracheostomy in order to uh, pretend you're attempting to save a life. You're doing a tracheostomy so that one, you can save the life and then close it up afterward. All right. Then why did Malcolm Perry make a transverse tracheostomy? Number one, he did it across this smaller than 6.5 millimeter apparent entry wound. Number two, and I think Francis X. O'Neill will verify this, the president had a deep fold in his throat and in his neck, a natural fold. Malcolm Perry will now tell you that he did the transverse tracheotomy in that natural fold for cosmetic purposes. Precisely the same reason that you do a vertical tracheostomy for cosmetic purposes. But we knew several years ago that Malcolm Perry would not respond to questions about the tracheostomy. So Robert Cutler and I trying to work on the condition of the wound at Parkland and the condition of the wound at Bethesda said, let's get to Malcolm Perry and ask him a very simple question by not asking him a question. Now, Robert Cutler loves forms. He has lots of forms. So we took one of his forms and we said, dear Malcolm Perry, Dr. Malcolm Perry, we know you're not going to be interviewed on the assassination. We know you don't want to talk about it. Just answer a simple question. We had a box for yes and a box for no. Did you, quote, neatly suture, unquote, the tracheostomy wound in the president's throat. He checked no, and he signed his name. Radiologist Everly said the body he saw at Bethesda had the tracheostomy neatly sutured. Now I think what we're going to find is that everything that Francis X. O'Neill saw, he saw and observed and accurately, accurately reported, but I don't think he saw the entire autopsy procedure. For example, I doubt what you saw, a neatly sutured tracheostomy. It was, was there was that, that very large three and a half excision. No neatly sutured. All right, so that means a, a major major contradiction between uh, uh, radiologist Everly and Francis X. O'Neill. I want you to entertain the possibility that both are right, and that it was unsutured prior to the time that Francis X. O'Neill saw the body. There are many other things. Uh, I want to point out to you that the Zabruder film does not show the occipital parietal area of the president's head blowing out. Yet every doctor and every nurse who observed the president's head and reported on it said the president had an explosive wound in the occipital parietal area of his head. That's right here. When Francis X. O'Neill saw the body, the entire top of the head was gone, and Dr. Boswell, in fact, in the autopsy notes and the drawing that he made indicated there was 11 by 17 section of the top of the head gone that was not observed at Parkland. Now, I'm not talking about body alteration, I'm not talking about stealing the body, and I'm not supporting, defending, or not defending David Lifton. I'm telling you that there are differences between the Zapruder film, Parkland Memorial doctor's observations, the Bethesda autopsy verbal report, the Bethesda autopsy x-rays and the Bethesda autopsy uh, photographs. And that may very well be because that at least three autopsy procedures were performed on the president's body. At least three. Let me give you one illustration. If you look at the x-rays, 
and take them to a doctor, and I urge you, as law students, to get the x-rays and take them to doctors, you will find every doctor will tell you that the right front side of this man's head was blown away. Now, remember what you heard from Francis X. O'Neill, there was no damage to the right side of the president's head, correct? Yet the x-rays indicate the right front is gone. He has no right eye. Whose x-rays are they? Every doctor I've taken the x-rays to will tell you, it's like if you do the same thing I have done, will tell you that the head looks as if it's sitting on a table. It does not seem to be attached to a body. We have then major contradictions in the Bethesda autopsy materials versus the Zapruder film and versus the Parkland uh, hospitals. We must go back to the beginning, examine custody of evidence, examine the x-rays for authenticity, examine the photographs for authenticity, and then listen to people like Francis X. O'Neill who were there. He is living proof that the body at Parkland is, was not in the same shape as the body at, Par at uh, Bethesda. Thank you. Okay, I'd, I'd, uh, I think we could go on uh, well into the night. Uh, if, if you could briefly uh, summarize that, if possible, uh, and then we can go to some questions. The body in, in Parkland was put into a, into a coffin, not an ornamental coffin. It was put into a coffin. That particular body was taken with Mrs. Kennedy in the ambulance on out to the uh, uh, Love Field, where it got on the plane and went in the back. On that plane were the closest friends of the President of the United States. One of them were with him at all times. No possible conceivable way that the body could have been altered in any way, en route from Harvard to Love Field, en route from Love Field to Andrews Air Force Base, en route from Andrews Air Force Base out to the uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. Mrs. Kennedy did not follow any casket into it. I saw her get out. I saw her go up to the 19th floor or the 17th floor, wherever it might have been. I also saw the casket still in the ambulance. In my mind's eye view, in my eye view, from the time that plane landed until the time we opened it, no possible conceivable way that anybody other than God Almighty himself could have done anything to that particular casket and changed that particular body. That body was in the same condition it was in. And let me say also, those x-ray photographs were delivered back into the room and we looked at them and whatever x-rays you might be talking about are not the x-rays which were taken of the body that was in the Bethesda autopsy room. I'm saying that. I'm also telling you that there was nothing wrong here. That president could have had his casket opened and everybody could have viewed it. But Mrs. Kennedy did not want the trauma of this young man, this young president, this person from Camelot, this trauma that would affect the entire country if they stayed there and looked at this open casket. You'd have something similar to what happened over in other countries of the world where people would be crying and yelling. Let me add one thing and I'll stop talking. The President of the United States had a brother. He was the Attorney General of the United States. The President of the United States had another brother who was a Senator. The Attorney General was charged with investigating, well let me rephrase that, 
The Attorney General indirectly was charged with investigating and concluding in the in conclusions of the result. The FBI is part of the Justice Department. Neither he nor his brother with their multi-million dollars, almost billions I would assume, nor Mrs. Kennedy with her hundreds of billions of dollars, nor uh, Rose Kennedy with her hundreds of billions of dollars, nor any member of the Kennedy clan who could hire anybody at any time in the last 25 years to find a conspiracy, not one of them disagree. Each and every one, the brothers, the wife, the mother, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the long session. If my brother was killed, and if I had the slightest inkling that a, a particular uh, conspiracy occurred, I'd spend every billions of dollars I had. Not only that, but he also had the whole Justice Department, the whole United States government. I'm going to convince me otherwise, unless you give me proof admissible in court. I want to thank Gary Hamilton for all the work he put into putting this together and having the people.